0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel. And this is Hello Monday, a show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. It used to be that hacking was the symbol of the counterculture. It was about solving problems outside of existing systems, about making up your own rules. Hackers were outsiders. But in the 90s, things changed.
1: You could work with venture capitalists. You could have a company that made millions and millions of dollars. You can make millions and millions of dollars and still be a true hacker.
0: That's Steven Levy. He's the journalist who wrote the book on hackers, literally. In 1984, it was called Hackers. Stephen's a friend. We got to know each other covering the same company, Facebook. We both met Mark Zuckerberg when he still needed a .edu address to get an account. For the last three years, Stephen's been talking to Mark, and now he has a new book, Facebook, The Inside Story. And Mark, well, for a generation of companies, he was the face of Hackers Gone Mainstream. Move fast, break things but today things are not great at Facebook. And it's time to ask, was hacking ever such a great idea anyhow? Here's Stephen.
1: Hacker culture is the thought that everyone's empowered to do whatever they can get their hands on and make it better. Uh, The hackers that I first discovered when I wrote a book about them in the early 80s were people who didn't see any boundaries between themselves and the tools they could use to improve the world, whether it was a a computer in front of them that wasn't supposed to be interactive and they made it interactive, or um, just the idea that something in the street would be broken and they'd walk up and fix it. So uh, I called it the hands-on imperative
0: you really were the first person to bring this idea of hackers to the mainstream. Um, there was a negative connotation to it at that point, right?
1: Actually, there was pre-negative connotation. There was uh, not much connotation. The only connotation, and it was somewhat negative, was that uh, someone who was a hacker would be some sort of loser who was addicted to computers, sitting in a basement, uh, fingers stained with potato chip salt on them and grease and just working all night in some arcane computer thing. But uh, when I met the people, I found something quite different. These people were explorers and adventurers, and they were creating things with computers. And computers really were the future at that point. And you could figure that out. And you figure these people really know something that I should learn more about. That's why I started writing about it more.
0: Your writing career, I mean, you were writing about the people making these companies through the late 80s, through the 90s, through the first dot com boom and then the bust and then the second dot-com boom. And that was around when we met Steven. I was I was um, just beginning to write about technology then. And it was the beginning of what we think of as the Web 2.0 era. And this idea of hacking was fundamental to those companies. And Web 2.0, I mean that was, you know, Google and Facebook and all of this LinkedIn, all of the social companies. And at that point, What did hacking mean? At that point,
1: hacking had gotten past the original feeling among those very early hackers that creating things on the computer um, didn't have to be something that was separated from making money. So the big shift that came, uh, say, around the 90s and, and afterwards was that there was no contradiction between hacking, which is something that gives people great pleasure, gives them control over the world, um, and you know, is something which for true hackers is almost sacred, and making a bundle while you do it. So, these people have managed to wish away the contradiction that hacking was something separate from commerce. You could work with venture capitalists. You could have a company that made millions and millions of dollars. You can make millions and millions of dollars and still be a true
0: hacker. Right. I mean, I I think back to that period of time, right, because hacking was – so counterculture right it was it was something that existed outside of a like a mainstream approach to business to culture and and then suddenly it became fused with mainstream culture and fused with mainstream business ideas and for a brief period we thought that it was perfectly appropriate that you could get really really rich by stepping outside the system
1: right well what became amazing was the system sort of stepped inside the hacking world it wasn't that the act of hacking was different. It was that the world realized that, wow, this, these are the people that are going to create the industries that are going to be the giant industries of our day. And if you look at it, you know, the, the companies that hackers created now are trillion-dollar companies. So the culture went to them. When I finished Hackers, the book— I was very pessimistic about where things would go. I thought money might destroy hacking, but in fact, you know, money circulated to hacking, and you know, uh, the hackers were the ones by being themselves that built the world we live in today.
0: I, I want to talk a little bit about how central this idea of hacking culture was to early Facebook, and I think back to Facebook's public filing, its S one, and Mark wrote that um, that. Letter that, if you go back and read it today, feels almost a bit naive. Where he begins by saying, "We didn't start Facebook to be a business. We started Facebook to be this other thing, to have the social mission of connecting people." Um, he has a whole section in that letter called the hacking way or the, hacker, the way. hacker. Way. The hacker way. The hacker way. Which
1: actually is literally Facebook's address in Menlo Park, One Hacker Way.
0: Right. Well, so what what was he getting at there?
1: He was getting at the ambition and the innovative approach the the company would take um, in fulfilling that mission of of connecting the world. Um, I have to say, I looked at that section with a little bit of pride because some of it looked like it could have been lifted from the second chapter of my book about hackers. Uh, He talked about the hands-on imperative in in there uh, without uh, using those words. Um, But he he always saw Facebook, and still does, I think, as a company that operates by the engineering mindset. And he feels that if you use that, that's the way to solve any problem that's going to confront you. And I think in the last couple of years, and we've actually discussed this during the course of my research, uh, he's come to realize the limitations of that engineering mindset.
0: And what is the engineering mindset? How, how would you describe it? What are the elements of it? Is, is it, is it? is that what hacking culture is, or are they two separate things? Well,
1: there's no problem that can't be fixed if you tinker with the machine enough.
0: Yeah. I don't know if life works that way.
1: Well, I think the Facebook is finding that out. Um, and I, I think in some sense they're still wed to that— engineering mindset when trying to fix uh, the problems and the vulnerabilities that that came from the 2016 election. Um, They took an engineering approach saying, oh, here's this problem. Let's fix it this way. Um, But uh, in in some ways, the problem is a little more fundamental. It goes back to that mission of connecting the world, which no one had ever done before, without really considering the consequences, which brings us to another one of Facebook's you know mottoes besides being you know we're hackers the hacker way which was move fast and break things
0: yes the posters the posters everywhere
1: and you know they very consciously didn't print them in blue the Facebook blue uh, they printed them in what was called uh, speedball red and you know and the, the mottoes were like move fast and break things um, hack in big in big words. Uh, and things like, uh, what would you do if you weren't afraid, which was another unofficial motto at Facebook.
0: And at that time, too, this idea of hacking, it may have been an engineering mindset, but Facebook was trying to layer it onto every function in their business. You would hack your communication strategy. You'd hack your marketing strategy. And I, I seem to remember, too, that when they built the new campus where they live, now one hacker away, that the word hack was layered into the sidewalk so large that you could see it from, I think it was outer space?
1: <laughs> I, don't, I, I haven't been in outer space there. I've, uh, Jeff Bezos hasn't set me up yet, but uh, uh, I, I, I did hear that.
0: Also, it's important to remember that at that time in Internet history, which was just a decade ago, but feels like a century ago, Facebook was setting the course for how all digital companies conducted themselves, how they understood and thought about their culture, whether you were starting Pinterest, whether you were an employee at a small startup you hadn't heard of. You would, you would attempt to take things from the Facebook way of doing business.
1: That's right, and that, uh, moving fast, and it was something of its time that, you know, it gets a little technical, but when Mark started programming, the system he grew up on was like the early web apps that, you know, and, you know, and websites that you could revise and get out every day. So the previous model was things like Microsoft, the apps, applications that lived on your computer that would get updated maybe every year. So Facebook, when it came out, was very much of that model. It was the first big company to really adopt that model fully, where instead of waiting for a year or months or even weeks to update what you did, you would push out updates several times a day. And that's how Facebook was able to move fast and zip past a lot of competitors that it might have had around that time.
0: And Facebook could even afford, as I remember, to get big things wrong because it moved so fast that taking the chance in the first place meant that it would get some things right.
1: Right. And it it carried on that mentality to the products that it came out with where the problems weren't technical. It wasn't that things crashed, but it was it did harm to people. It compromise people's privacy. So the great example of that, of course, is the original newsfeed, which when it came out, people felt by having their information pushed to them instead of having to go and look at people's profiles to learn whether someone had broken up with their boyfriend or girlfriend or whether... Um, you know, uh, they were going to a party and had has pictures of it. It would all be pushed to them. And people felt that violated their privacy and Facebook hadn't warned them. And Mark immediately, you know, pushed out some fixes, wrote a letter of tepid apology and got past it. And that was a lesson that he learned maybe too well that you could, you know, uh, screw up in that sense, even with people's privacy and just move on and you'd be forgiven.
0: And he learned that again and again and again and did that again and again and again. And we all were fine with it until we weren't.
1: Well, what happened was that the impact of Facebook getting something wrong kept increasing as the company's reach increased. As it wasn't just thousands of people using it or just your friends, but everyone all over the world and the stakes got higher and higher when false information about someone in a country like Myanmar could lead to violence in the streets. And, that, and that's what happened. And Facebook um, – skated over that. It wasn't like they had no clue that it would happen. They they built things out, you know, maybe before they were aware of it. But as they expanded it, and this is what I was able to find out by ch- digging into the company and talking to so many people, was almost at every step it, that something like this happened, they got warnings. People would say to Mark, um, you know, or bring things up in meetings, that, well, there's consequences of this. We have, should be careful about this.
0: To what degree do you think that Mark and the larger l- leadership team Understood those consequences before the rest of us?
1: I don't know how big an effort they made to understand those consequences. Um, I feel that um, moving fast was the priority. It wasn't like that they didn't care about what happened to people. But uh, if you ask them what was important, uh, you could see by where they put the resources.
0: And then I remember being at the the developer conference in 2014. You were there too, Stephen. I think we sat next to each other when all of a sudden Mark got up on stage and said, "I don't remember what the words were, but the the message was basically like, we don't really want to use word hack anymore like let's let's this move fast and break things thing it's it's only part of the equation right
1: well what, what he what he really did was he um, amended move fast and break things uh, the new rule was move fast with stable infrastructure.
0: Which is super boring on a poster.
1: Right, right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't have the same ring to it, does it?
0: No. Was that a flag that they were starting to begin to understand the the scope of their impact on society and so. I think
1: also, you know, they realized that um, when you're a giant company, uh, you can't come off like an underdog. And and all these companies in Silicon Valley uh, try to wear underdog clothes way past expiration date.
0: We're taking a quick pause here. Coming up after the break, I'll talk to Stephen about hacker culture in 2020. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days. All showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next, and thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm back with Stephen Levy. In the summer of 2016, as Stephen started reporting for his book, he traveled to Nigeria with Mark. In retrospect, it was peak Facebook, but man, we didn't know it yet. Mark was a kind of rock star. He'd just come from Italy, where he'd met the Pope, because of course the Pope wanted to meet Mark Zuckerberg. Every element that would soon get Facebook in trouble was already in play, but during that summer, no one had foreseen it yet.
1: But when Donald Trump won that election, things changed for Facebook. And then I, for the next uh, three years, I got to watch as the company tried to adjust and as their reputation uh, went from sky high to pretty much the tank.
0: And so what what were your conversations with Mark like after Nigeria? Did they change? They did
1: change. Um, on one hand, he he's a great poker player. You know, Mark will never say, oh, my God, I'm so worried about Facebook. You know, he, he's, he's very determined. He listens. Um, and you have to get pretty good to understand what what he's really thinking. And But after a time, I talked to him nine times during the book, he, he got more candid. And he would share with me the idea, the struggle he had that on one hand uh, – his big mission had turned to winning back the trust that Facebook lost, and on the other hand, he wasn't willing to let go of moving fast. He said, "We have to keep moving fast; otherwise, you go back to that little logo of sun, which somehow was on the campus. Uh, Facebook could die like so." The, he the, believes most of those that
0: companies. speed is really the the most important attribute. Not no, size of the company. Or moving,
1: moving dramatically and, you know, and taking on big challenges. So they, they did things, you know, in the past couple of years that you would never think a company with, uh, on, with a dicey reputation like Facebook, trying to win back trust, would do. Uh, well, I remember one conversation we had. He was about to, you know, go into the developer's conference. And, you know, he was talking about this product he was going to announce, Facebook dating. And I said, really, Mark? You know, everyone's thinks that you're violating their privacy and you're going to start a dating app? And, you know, he said, well, you know, we again, we have to move forward. People have always used Facebook to for dating. We thought we'd do this special, you know, uh, feature for that. And then we went on to something else. Then a few minutes later, he returned. He said, gee, do you really think it's a bad idea? Do you really think you know, people aren't going to uh, trust us for
0: this? Lord. Well, so, so Stephen, talk to me about the culture at Facebook now. I mean, does does this sort of this undercurrent of hacking that really was foundational to the early culture, does it still I think exist to, there? To,
1: to some degree it does, but I think it's, you know, the confidence that they approach, approach hacking with um, is, has been shaken, definitely. And, you know, uh, and not just Facebook, but other companies in Silicon Valley, too, um, now have lost some trust with their employees. And you see some of the employees pushing back on the decisions their bosses have made. Um, At Facebook, Mark is now uh, insisting that political ads, Facebook shouldn't have to fact check them. And uh, his employees are among the people who are pushing back on that.
0: Yeah, I think it was last October, several hundred Facebook employees wrote a letter that was somehow obtained by the New York Times. Well, that's another
1: thing, that it used to be uh, Mark does a a weekly Q&A, and you would never see a leak come out of that. And uh, last summer, someone gave a whole taped uh, account of it, and it's actually— Someone gave a complete recording of a QA and a period to a, a, a reporter. So, um, You know,
0: some of this, it comes down to trust. And in, early, in the early days of the evolution of these companies, Stephen, um, employees trusted the founder, almost like a, a queen or a king. Um, trusted them so completely that you could speak freely about what you're creating and understand that it would never go beyond that room. And today, what we're seeing is the complete dissolution of trust between the people who work at the company and the people who are leading the companies. Um, what happened?
1: Well, I think what happened. One one thing is, in part, size, and the other thing is that you know the the reputation uh, of the company. But,
0: but Stephen, there there are. There are lots of big companies outside of the tech industry. And yes, maybe right now, the biggest companies, many of them are tech companies. But there are and have been for over a century. Well, they
1: didn't didn't start with that kind of idealism. And, you know, you mentioned it yourself. There there, there was and I think sort of still is a cult of Mark at Facebook, Uh, even though most people at Facebook probably haven't sat down and met Mark or, you know, uh, talked to him certainly. Um, he does a pretty good job of having his message go down throughout. Pretty much everyone at Facebook knows how Mark wants things. Right. And his word is law there. And uh I've asked people there, well, how, how does that happen? And, and he passes it down through his lieutenants. There still are, are uh, – is starting to dwindle, but there's still a group of people who have been with Mark for well over a decade who have important positions you know, at Facebook. And you know uh, they're pretty good at channeling Mark throughout the company.
0: And I guess that's culturally what it means to really truly be a founder-driven company and that those companies are particularly prevalent in Silicon Valley. Um, where does hacking fit in in 2020? What what aspects of that culture can we take forward and should we? And what should we park and leave well, behind? Well, I think
1: the part that I think is still valuable is, you know, the, the part of hacking is undertaking tasks that seem impossible and actually doing them. And that's something that uh, you saw at Apple Under Steve Jobs, Um, you saw Google with Larry Page and Sergey Brin um, to do something like the search engine that brings you the most obscure fact from anywhere on the web. Um, Tasks like those Um, could only be done, I think, with a hacking mentality, which where you undertake something that people think is crazy, but in part because you understand that technology has made it possible um, and you're fearless about undertaking it. That's still a valuable thing to do. On the other hand, I think when you have scale and you touch the lives of literally billions of people, um, you have to avoid a recklessness that can go hand in hand with that
0: right and maybe that's something we're just coming to understand what do you make of the tech clash uh, you know you referenced it earlier just the the real pushback among people who work in tech it's almost like tech is to job seekers what finance was in 2000 well there
1: there's certainly elements of that but i i still think it's different i still think um, unlike the financial sector tech produces things that that, that people use that um, in, improves our lives in ways that we couldn't imagine, couldn't have imagined before, you know, we adopted these tools. So I think that just as, you know, through the boom and bust where the valuations of these tech companies rose and fell and rose again, um, that didn't matter to the progress that technology itself would make. And I still think we're seeing that. I still think we're seeing um, improved technology, you know, products that can do more, um, technology like AI, which is going to do things for us, again, that, that we can't imagine. And I think that's a constant. That, that keeps rising on a steady plane, whereas both finance and really reputation rises and falls. So I still think we have you know, like a lot of amazing twists and turns to be taking from the technology itself and from hacking to bring us there.
0: So you're a tech optimist. Well, I, I,
1: I actually am. I feel that uh, there's improvements to be made in things like health. Um, maybe it'll help us all live a longer.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I laugh a little bit, Stephen, but I am too. I am uh – absolutely, unapologetically, a tech optimist. And I think we go through these cycles of how we deploy the tech and how we develop the tech and how we invite people in to help us to do it.
1: Right. And by that by that stance, the tech lash really is a great thing because it, it'll add an element of humility that maybe wasn't there before as we pursue these goals of making our lives better through technology.
0: Yeah. Well put. Um, well, thank you so much for coming in, Stephen.
1: Thanks, Jesse. It was all great talking to you. We had to come to a studio to do it.
0: Again, that was Stephen Levy. His new book, Facebook, The Inside Story, comes out this spring. Check it out. And now I want to introduce you to a new segment. It's a game, really, one of my favorites. I call it Would You Rather. Here's how it's going to work. I'll ask this week's Would You Rather. You send me your answers at hellomondayatlinkedin.com or you post on LinkedIn using the hashtag HelloMonday, and I'll share the very official results every week after the show. To kick us off, I have our producer, Sarah Storm, in the studio with me. Hi. Hi, Sarah. Here goes. Would you rather an office with a door that closes or free lunch every day? It is a real toss up, but I think I'm going to go for the door because it helps me with deep work. But then I love food. I don't know. (laughs) Um, You can't overthink it. I can't. Um, I think free lunch because I trust myself to find a quiet spot to work. So basically, Sarah, you think both. You're a both and kind of person. I am a door and free lunch. I am a both and person. Now, how do you think it's going to shake out among our listeners? I think that people who are in an open office plan are going to want a door if they are in a loud work environment and a lot of other people are going to want a free lunch. Okay, I disagree with you. I think it's totally going to break down according to age. I think if you're under 30, you're totally going to want free lunch. And if you're over 30, you want the door. I'll be so curious to see what happens. So let us know and next week I will report back on what I hear. And now, if you like our show, and we hope you do, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It takes two seconds and it helps new listeners find the show. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini, Victoria Taylor, Michaela Greer, and Juliette Ferro help us move fast without breaking too many things. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening.
1: Do you use Facebook a lot now?
0: You know what? I don't. I think it's fair to say that I don't log on every day. I mean, of course, I actually use Instagram quite a lot, um, but I don't have the Facebook app on my phone anymore. I don't miss it. Did
1: you consciously delete it?
0: Um, I consciously deleted it a couple of years ago. And never put it back and never missed it. Um, I, but I didn't do it because I wanted to stop using it per se. I, I did it in a moment when kind of everybody was doing it. Um, I think it was probably out of anger and concern after the, the big data scandal. Um, but it wasn't that much anger or concern because I continue to use WhatsApp and I continue to use Instagram. And both of those apps are... Our property is just a big blue app. It's fallen out of favor among my friends. It is what Mark told me it would be in 2005 when I first interviewed him over the phone. He said this is going to be a social utility. It's what it is.